Our reading this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 10, and I'll be starting at verse 28. If you want to follow along with us, then please open up your Bible, or the words will come on the screen as we read together. It says this, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord." We promise not to give you our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or, or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we will counsel all debts." We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of the shekel each year for the service of the house of God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, and for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God." We, the priests, the Levites and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, of our herds, of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, to the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, their new wine and the olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well, before we dive into this passage together this morning, it is Remembrance Sunday, a time where not just the church, but the nation gathers to remember those who have given so much for the cause of freedom. 
in a world which is so volatile right now, and in a world where nationalism seems to be creeping in once again and we need to look after ourselves and protect our own and put our interests first, there has never been a more important time to remember. To remember what so many gave for the cause of freedom, that we might be able to walk freely in the streets in this country, free of tyranny, and to bring this before the Lord, and to say, God, we want to see peace reign in our nation and in our world, and to commit ourselves once again to the Prince of Peace. So we're going to see a short video which was put together by Steve and Gemma Ponsford to help us to reflect on this at home. We're going to have a two-minute silence together. And I would encourage you, wherever you're watching this from, to commit yourself once again to the way of peace as we remember those who have given so much. Let's roll the video.
Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you today on this Remembrance Sunday for those who have given so much for the cause of freedom for this country and around the world. Lord, today we mourn with those who are mourning, those who have lost loved ones for the cause of freedom. And we thank you for those who have gone before that we might know peace in our time and in a world which is in desperate need of peace, in a world where there are conflicts raging right across this globe, we ask, Prince of Peace, will you reign? Help us not to forget the sacrifice that has gone before. We pray for the politicians, Lord God, who make so many difficult decisions which have the ability to raise or diffuse tensions around our world. And we pray, Father God, that on this Remembrance Sunday, they too will remember the sacrifice of so many, that we can continue to live in peace. We pray for this city that we find ourselves in. We pray for Plymouth with such a proud naval history. We pray for the service men and women who are stationed here in this city. We pray for the chaplains who minister to them on a daily basis. And we ask that in the midst of what they are called to do, they might know something of you. We pray, Lord God, that you will help us to be a people who demonstrate peace to all who we come into contact with. In a time where divisions seem to be deeper than anything, in our land and in this world, we pray that we will be the peacemakers who you call us to be. And Lord God, as we come around to the word of God now and as we look at this next passage in the book of Nehemiah, above everything, Lord God, today we pray that we will hear your voice. We pray, Lord God, that we will catch a glimpse of your glory We pray, Lord God, that you will encourage us, you'll edify us, you'll spur us on to live the life which you call us to live. And in doing so, Lord God, may we be a witness to a world which so desperately needs you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we have heard... Nehemiah chapter 10 from 28 read to us this morning. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow on our home, we're going to be picking out some of the themes in this. So do have your Bibles open this morning. But as we start, I want to tell you a story. There was a man who decided that it was time for him in his life to get a pet. He'd been thinking about it for a long time and he's right, right. Now I need a companion. Now I need someone in my house who's going to live with me. I'm going to get a pet. So he spent weeks and weeks and weeks researching what pet that he was going to get. And finally, he rested on the fact that he was going to get a parrot. So he goes to the pet shop and he looks at all the lovely birds in the pet shop and he picks out the most beautiful bird in the whole of the shop. And he says, that's the one. That is the bird that's coming home with me today. That is my new pet parrot. So he gets the parrot and he takes the parrot home. But when he gets home, he realizes that there is a problem. You see, this parrot has a really foul mouth. 
He just swears and swears and swears and swears. And every time the man steps foot into the room, he abuses the man. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of this parrot and his potty mouth going off on and on and on and on, the man has enough. And in a fit of rage, he grabs the bird, he takes him over to the freezer, and he opens the freezer, and he stuffs him in the freezer. There was scratching, and there was thrashing about coming from inside the freezer, and then suddenly, it all went quiet. The man, realizing what he had done, becomes remorseful and he thinks to himself, oh my goodness, what have I done? I have killed the birds. And he goes over to the freezer to see if the bird is still alive. And as he opens it, he sees this parrot's eyes staring up at him. And the parrot says to him, I'm sorry, I promise I'll clean up my ways. I'll get rid of my potty mouth. I won't swear anymore. And the man feels so remorseful that he pulls him out of the freezer and he puts him back in the cage. And the parrot again, he says, I'm sorry for everything I've done. I will promise to change my ways. It's okay, says the man. We'll call it a fresh start. We'll go again. You don't need to worry. I've just got one question, though, the parrot says. Can I ask it? Of course, says the man, ask away. Well, says the parrot, if you don't mind me asking, what did the chicken do? Now, if you're in the room right now, you'd be in a fit of rage, a fit of laughter at the sophisticatedness of the joke that I've just told. Now, obviously you're not, so feel free to put a laughing emoji into the chat right now. It's a silly story. A parrot with a potty mouth uh, gets put in a freezer and he's asked to change his ways and he promises that he is going to change his ways. And today, as we look at this passage together, we see... The people of God, after a time of building the walls, after a time of setting their face back to God, make a series of promises to God. And what I want to do as we look at this passage together this morning is this. I want us to ask the question, how do we make investments in our life which last? You'll remember from the preach that Tom gave in chapter 8 that the people of God heard the word of God read by Ez, from Ezra. They haven't been put in a freezer by God, but they certainly realized that they needed to change their ways. And chapter 9, as Zoe touched on last week, is a chapter of repentance. The Jews confessed their sins, and we read at the end of the chapter this. In view of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals on it. They put an agreement in writing, and they sealed it. Now, this was serious business, because putting a seal on a document meant and signified that this was a solemn oath before the Lord. And chapter 10 starts with a list of all the people who agreed to the covenant. And as I said, we picked up this passage in verse 28 today. They have made an agreement, they have made an oath to God. The Bible is very specific when it comes to making vows to God. Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2 says this, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything that he said. 
Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4 says this, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vows. And Jesus is quite specific, isn't he, in Matthew chapter 5 about making empty vows when it comes to God. Are vows something that we should still do when it comes to God today? Should we still be a people who make vows? I think it's possible to answer yes to that question for a number of reasons. Firstly, a vow helps us to focus more. It's easy to say, isn't it? I'm going to tell my friends about Jesus. But by saying, do you know what? I'm going to invite my friends, my family, my neighbor to join in church next week. I'm going to specifically invite them to come and be part of our gathering It focuses our time and our attention on what we're called to do. It's easy to say, I need to honour God with my finances more. But a vow focuses us to do that. I'm going to give the first fruits of my finance. I'm going to give the first 10% that I have to God. Secondly, a vow expresses love. That's why the central part of a marriage service is a couple making vows to each other and a vow to God. A vow is a language of love. It means that things are more than just about feelings, but actually it's a promise that no matter what we go through, we're still going to be committed to one another. Ultimately, a vow is an investment which can make a life-changing difference. And the great news today is that this God that we're talking about, that we're worshipping together today, is a covenant-keeping God. The Bible tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen. That means that if God promises something, if he makes a vow, if he makes a covenant, we can be absolutely sure and absolutely certain that it will come to pass. And the even greater news is today that whilst whilst we may let God down time and time and time again by making promises that we constantly break he is still faithful and the greatest promise of them all despite all of our flaws and despite all of our failures despite us constantly turning our backs on God despite all of the baggage that we carry around Jesus came and he gave his life on a cross and in doing so he provided a new covenant a new promise a new vow that those who put their trust in Jesus have the promise of eternal life that those who put their trust in Jesus have the hope of heaven and can live freely today let me ask you something if you're watching this right now are you free right now It can be a really helpful thing for us as Christians to make covenant with God and say, God, this is how I am choosing to live my life. But here's the thing. You will not succeed as a Christian based on the promises that you make to God. Rather, by believing the promises that God has given to you and acting upon them. For many, however, the Christian walk never really gets too serious. For many, however, this is where it really stops. And I would suggest that in any type of church, certainly in any church that I have been to, there are three types of people that generally frequent the church. There are churchians, there are Christians, and there are disciples. Churchians are people who attend a church service. They're probably there most weeks. They probably get involved in a lot of the activities of church. But when it comes to making a commitment to Christ, it's evidently lacking in their life. I mean, they'll know all the stories, 
And they'll know what to do and what to say at the right time. But woe betide anyone who comes to try to change their church. Christians, on the other hand, they're people who are saved by grace. They've realized that they're a sinner and they're in need of Jesus. They've taken baby steps towards him and can probably tell you with confidence that they have a hope of heaven. But it never really gets beyond that. They're people who often let the cares of this world get in rather than leaning on their faith. And as a result, they're never really truly rooted. Whereas disciples are people who have taken Jesus literally at his word. People who are willing to take up their cross and to follow him no matter what the cost or no matter how uncomfortable things may get. The point I guess that I'm trying to make this morning is that unless we decide to be completely committed to Jesus, we won't be. Unless we decide to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you can have it all. He never will have it all. And as we think about this theme this morning, before we carry on, I want to give you a moment, wherever you're watching this right now, just to simply examine your heart and ask yourself, where do you fit, I wonder, on that scale? I mean, be honest with yourself this morning. As you look back over your Christian journey, Would you be a churchian, someone who just turns up every so often to church? You know all the things to say, you know how to look like you've got it all together, but really, you're not committed to Christ? Are you a Christian? Great, you're saved by grace, but actually you've never really allowed your relationship to go as deep as it could. Or would you class yourself today as a disciple, someone who says, God, whatever the cost, here I am, you can have it all. I'm not saying that to condemn anyone this morning, but it's important that we examine ourselves. It's important that we examine our hearts. It's important we understand where we are on our journey of faith so we can allow Jesus to come in and to change us. So the people here in Jerusalem, after that time of repentance that we heard about last week, they turn to God and they say, God, we're going to be devoted in living a certain way and doing certain things in order to draw close to you. We want to live in a way which honors you. And they make a number of vows. The first vow that they make, we see, is found in uh, Nehemiah 10 and verse 29. And we read these words. All these now join their brothers and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. We see a theme which comes up time and time again in the book of Nehemiah. We see this vow of the people that they're going to submit themselves to God's word. The key, really, what we see here is devotion. 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The depth of your devotion will determine your impact for him. Let me say that again, because I think we all need to hear that this morning. The depth of your devotion to Jesus will determine your impact for him. If we have a a loose devotion, we'll turn up to church every so often. 
We won't really be committed to what God is calling us to. It's no wonder that actually people don't see that difference in our lives. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, put it like this. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, but from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was to have. The essence of what the people of God are saying here is that we want to be so committed to you, God. We don't want anything else to come in the way of our relationship with you, God, that we're willing to call down curses upon ourselves, God, if we fail to live the way that you're calling us to live, if we don't obey the things that we've said we're going to do. Now, I am not suggesting this morning that you make a vow to God and be de- that you're going to be devoted to him and that God will curse you if you break that. That is, of course, not what I am suggesting. But what I am saying is that if God is building his church here at Hope, and the only way for his church to have a genuine lasting impact on the people of this city and beyond is that the people of this church become fully devoted to him, what's our response going to be to him today? It's so easy, particularly in a time where we can't be together, just to simply drift And to simply say, you know what, I can't engage right now. It's too difficult to engage right now, so I'm just going to prod along. No, I believe the call today of God is to be a people who are devoted to him no matter what the cost. Even though it's hard to engage, even though it's hard to witness, even though there's so much going on in our lives right now, even though there's so much uncertainty, maybe around our finances or our job or our security in general, do you know what? This is the time where we can be a witness to a world which is so anxious. How are we going to do it? What does it look like? You know, I want to see this church grow. But primarily, I don't want to see this church grow with people who are already Christians. I want to see people coming to know Jesus for the first time. I want there to be much rejoicing in heaven regularly because people are coming into contact with Jesus because they've come into contact with us. And you know, if that is going to be the case, we, as the people of God need to grasp the heart of God. You see, it's when we tap into God's heart that all of our hopes and our dreams and our ambitions, all of our preconceived ideas, all of our preferences pale into insignificance because we catch a glimpse of his glory and what things could be really like. Are we devoted to him or are we just plodding on right now, I wonder? The second vow that we see made in this particular passage today is a vow of separation. We read these words in verses 28 and 30. We promise to not give our daughters in marriage to people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Hang about. Luke, you've just said that you want to see this church grow, but you want to see it grow with people who are primarily not Christians and don't know Jesus, how is that possible if the next vow that we see here is a vow of separation? And besides, didn't Jesus hang out with gluttons and drunkards and party with tax collectors? What are you saying this morning? When we're talking about separation, 
We're talking about, again, being devoted to God, totally devoted to him, no matter what the cost. When a man and a woman get married, they separate themselves from all other possible partners by giving themselves completely to one another. And the call of God here is to be separate from the world, but it's not a call to sit in a holy huddle and not to have any engagement with the world, to look after ourselves first and foremost and make sure that we are okay. Actually, no, it's quite the opposite. You see, here in Nehemiah, we're talking about the context of marriage. God was calling his people to be a missionary people. In other words, Israel was supposed to point the way to God to all of the other nations around them. The other nations should have had the opportunity to look at Israel and look at how they were conducting their lives and how they were going about their business and saying, wow, there must be a God in heaven because I see it in the lives of these people. They were a missionary people. And as a result, it was vital that their message did not become corrupted. And if the people of God at this stage were to marry those who were not Jews, then their message would ultimately have been watered down and people would have become incredibly lukewarm about the message. That's why jumping ahead to Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 26, we read this. Was it not because of the marriages like these that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. The thing is, we are more influenced by people than we think. We are called to be a people who are in the world, but not of the world. We are called to go and hang out with non-Christians, but we're called not to be influenced by them. That's why we read in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let me ask you this morning, how many non-Christians do you know? How many non-Christians do you regularly hang out with? If you spend most of your time with Christians, I want to encourage you today to go and join a club. Go and meet people. Make genuine friendships with those who are not like you. Make genuine friendships with those who don't know Jesus. How on earth will they find out about Jesus unless we do that? But remember, always, as the people of God, our allegiance is with Jesus. If we allow ourselves to compromise and we simply act as the world acts, how will anyone ever know that there's a better way? Can your non-Christian friends, I wonder, tell that there is something different about you by the way that you act? Or do you simply blend in with the crowd? That's a challenge to us all, isn't it? And coming back to this whole marriage thing, there's a real challenge here, I believe, for the people of God in this day and age who are maybe dating right now or who are looking for a partner. God calls us to be separate from the world. In other words, he calls us to put him above everything else. And I've got to be careful how I word this because I realize that there are people who will be affected by this, even in our own congregation. But just as the vow was made for the Jews about marriage, the Bible does teach, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what righteousness and wickedness what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have 
with darkness. Now, let me be straight before I go on. If you are watching this and you are a Christian and you are married to a non-Christian, let me just say first and foremost, God champions your marriage. God wants to bless your marriage. God wants your marriage to succeed and he wants your marriage to work just as he wants anyone else's marriage to work. But many Christians who are married to non-Christians will testify that actually it's extremely hard because their spouse simply doesn't understand what's so important to them. Their spouse simply doesn't get why Jesus has to come first. And many will tell you that at times they've had to compromise their faith in order to appease their spouse. If you are watching this and you are unmarried or you are dating at the moment, just remember this. God wants the best for you. He wants you to be spiritually mature in every way. He wants you to go deeper with him than you can ever possibly imagine. So the question that you need to ask when you're thinking about dating or when you're thinking about marriage is, do I really want to put God first in my life? And will the relationship which I am pursuing help me to do that and give me the best possible chance to do that? You know, I thank God that I'm married to Gemma. I thank God that I have someone who understands and gets it. And I want to say, if you're watching this, don't compromise, don't settle for second best. Settle for someone who is going to have the same passions and the same interests and the same heart to follow Jesus that you have. The next vow that we see here in this scripture today is the vow to keep the Sabbath. Verse 31 says this, when the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the lands and will cancel all our debts. The Sabbath was a day which was set aside to honour God. It was a day where people were not meant to be distracted by the demands and the cares of life, but they could focus on God. It was also meant to be a day of rest, where we could just put things down for a while and spend time in the presence of God. Let me tell you another story today. One man challenged another man to an all-day woods chopping contest. The challenger, he worked very hard all day, chopping and chopping and chopping and chopping. He only took a very short lunch break and then got back to it, chopping and chopping and chopping and chopping. The other man ate a leisurely lunch and he took several breaks throughout the day. And at the end of the day, the challenger who had worked so hard was surprised and even annoyed when he looked over and he saw that the man who he challenged had actually chopped more wood than him. And he went over to him and he said, hey, I don't get it. How have you chopped so much wood? Every time I checked today, every time I looked over at you, you were having a rest. You were having a break. How did you beat me in this competition? To which the winning woodsman replied, didn't you notice every time you thought I was just sitting down, I was sharpening my axe. And as a result, I was able to chop more than you. Are you, I wonder, feeling a little bit dull today? Perhaps you need to do as these Jews did here and schedule in that time of rest. Schedule in that Sabbath in your life where you can focus once again on God. You know, this coronavirus season is so hard on us, isn't it? I don't know about you, but there have been times over the course of the last weeks and months that in my heart, I've just wanted to give up. 
I've just wanted to say enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. And I'm not saying that because I want sympathy. I'm saying that because I know I'm not the only one who's been in that position. We've all felt these feelings. We've all felt these emotions. And going back into another lockdown, maybe you're feeling them again right now. How is your Sabbath time with God? How is your acts looking right now? Is it a bit dull? And you're just going and going and going and going. Or have you taken time to sharpen it? You know, I'm not very good at sitting down and resting. I'm not very good at times at even keeping Sabbath. I just keep going and going and going and going. And it's not healthy. And it doesn't achieve ultimately what God wants to achieve in my life. And it doesn't for everyone else as well. So this again is a call to examine ourselves this morning. Examine how we keep Sabbath and examine how we put God first in our lives. It comes back to getting our priorities in order, doesn't it? It comes back to once again seeing God and his kingdom as being more important than anything else in our lives. How are we doing right now? How are you doing The final vow that we see in this particular passage that I want to highlight today is the vow to support God's work. So in verses 32 to 39, we see the phrase, the house of our God, appear nine times. And verse 39 really sums up the commitment that they make by saying, we will not neglect the house of our gods. The temple here in Jerusalem stood at the heart of the country's religious, its moral and its spiritual life. And in this passage, we see a few brief insights about why the people and how the people went about supporting it. Number one, they were responsible for supporting it. They were responsible for giving to it. Verses 32 to 35 say that they assumed responsibility. They owned it and they gave what they owned because they saw it as their privilege and their responsibility to do so. We see that these people were obedient in supporting the temple, obedient in giving too. They didn't just give what they thought they could, but they were obedient in their giving. God had been so good to his people, and as a result, generosity was expected from them in order that others might be blessed too. We see a systematic nature of their giving and their support too. Verse 32 says that they were to bring a third of a silver shekel every year. There was an orderliness about how they went on and supported the work. And this is something which the New Testament alludes to too. We read in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 that on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. We also see that this giving, this support, was a sacrificial giving and support too. We're told that they were to give the first fruits of their crops in verse 35. Not that which was left over, not the small change that they had in their pocket. Mother Teresa put it like this. If you give what you don't need, it isn't giving. What all of this church boils down to is simple. Who is truly Lord of our lives? As a church, is Jesus truly Lord of our life? Or do we get so worried about keeping an organization and a club going when actually God is calling us to something new? As individuals, is Jesus really Lord of our life? Or do we get swayed by the things of this world? Do we allow our 
understanding of what God is saying to us to be compromised by popular opinion. And we say, no, 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 I don't really believe that. Or are we willing to live as God called us to live, as a missionary people? Because what was true of Israel is true of us too. Israel were meant to point to all the other nations that there is a God in heaven. And as Christians, we are a missionary people. We are meant to point to a broken and hurting world, that there is a God in heaven who loves them, that there is a God in heaven who has their best interests at heart, that there is a God in heaven who can change their lives. And if that's to be the case, the call for each and every one of us today is devotion to him. I'm going to bring the band back up. For all of us, that challenge remains. How do we make investments that truly and genuinely last? Not because we want extra credit with God, but because he has done everything for us. And as a result, we're called to give everything to him. The old hymn says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And as an act of response, church, today, wherever you're watching, will you join with us and sing, giving you my heart, I surrender all. Wherever you're at, let's commit ourselves to the ways and the will of God again today. You know what? We can make promises to God and we'll break them. Because it's part of our nature that we constantly wander off course. But the good news is the scripture tells us that his mercies are new every morning. That he is faithful to forgive even when we get it wrong. And it's very easy when we think about coming to God and saying, God, here I am again, to say, well, I tried that in the past and it didn't work because I messed up, so I'll just leave it this time. You know, when I think about this, I always get that picture of a father who is helping his child to walk for the first time. And he places him up against the wall and he moves a few steps back and he says, come on, son, come on, son, walk to me. And the child takes those first kind of faltering steps he takes one or two and then he falls over. You know, the father is never disappointed that his son has fallen. Rather, he's excited that he's taken a step. And today, do you know what? You can promise God that you will be devoted to him and you may fall. You may even fall today. But God wants you to take a step in the right direction today. And when we do fall, he's there to lift us back up. Let me pray then we'll sing together. Father God, we thank you for the example that we see here in Scripture of the Israelites. As they made these vows to you to live for you and to live the way that you called them to live. And today, as the Church of Jesus Christ, the people of Hope Baptist Church and those who are watching in as well, Lord, we commit ourselves to your will and your ways once again. We say, will you have it all? Help us to live for you today, we pray. May we truly be a missionary people that point the way to a God in heaven who loves a broken and hurting world. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.